Book four, chapters nineteen through thirty four of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo. Book four, chapter nineteen. To this supposed deity, whom they call Fortuna, they ascribe so much, indeed, that they have a tradition that the image of her, which was dedicated by the Roman matrons, and called Fortuna Muliebris, has spoken, and has said once and again that the matrons pleased her by their homage, which, indeed, if it is true, ought not to excite our wonder. For it is not so difficult for malignant demons to deceive, and they ought the rather to advert to their wits and wiles, because it is that goddess who comes by haphazard who has spoken, and not she who comes to reward merit. For Fortuna was loquacious, and Felicitas mute. And for what other reason, but that men might not care to live rightly, having made Fortuna their friend, who could make them fortunate without any good desert? And truly, if Fortuna speaks, she should at least speak, not with a womanly, but with a manly voice, lest they themselves who have dedicated the image should think so great a miracle has been wrought by feminine loquacity. CHAPTER Twenty. They have made virtue also a goddess, which indeed, if it could be a goddess, had been preferable to many. And now, because it is not a goddess, but a gift of God, let it be obtained by prayer from him, from, by whom alone it can be given, and the whole crowd of false gods vanishes. But why is faith believed to be a goddess, and why does she herself receive temple and altar? For whoever prudently acknowledges her makes his own self an abode for her. But how do they know what faith is, of which it is the prime and greatest function, that the true God may be believed in? But why had not virtue sufficed? Does it not include faith also? Forasmuch as they have thought proper to distribute virtue into four divisions, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, and as each of these divisions has its own virtues, faith is among the parts of justice, and has the chief place with as many of us as know what that saying means, the just shall live by faith. But if faith is a goddess, I wonder why these keen lovers of a multitude of gods have wronged so many other goddesses by passing them by, when they could have dedicated temples and altars to them likewise. Why has temperance not deserved to be a goddess, when some Roman princes have obtained no small glory on account of her? Why, in fine, is fortitude not a goddess, who aided Mucius when he thrust his right hand into the flames, who aided Curtius when, for the sake of his country, he threw himself headlong into the yawning earth, who aided Decius the sire and Decius the son when they devoted themselves for the army? Though we might question what of these men had true fortitude, if this concerned our present discussion. Why have prudence and wisdom merited no place among the gods? Is it because they are all worshipped under the general name of virtue itself? Then they could thus worship the true God also, of whom all the other gods are thought to be parts. But in that one name of virtue is comprehended both faith and chastity, which yet have obtained separate altars and temples of their own. CHAPTER Twenty One. These, not verity, but vanity, has made goddesses. For these are gifts of the true God, not themselves goddesses. However, where virtue and felicity are, what else is sought for? What can suffice the man whom virtue and felicity do not suffice? For surely virtue comprehends all things we need do, felicity all things we need wish for. 
If Jupiter then was worshipped in order that he might give these two things, because if extent and duration of empire is something good, it pertains to this same felicity, why is it not understood that they are not goddesses, but the gifts of God? But if they are judged to be goddesses, then at least that other great crowd of gods should not be sought after. For having considered all the offices which their fancy is distributed among the various gods and goddesses, let them find out, if they can, anything which could be bestowed by any god whatever on a man possessing virtue, possessing felicity. What instruction could be sought either from Mercury or Minerva, when virtue already possessed all in herself? Virtue, indeed, is defined by the ancients as itself the art of living well and rightly. Hence, because virtue is called in Greek arete, it has been thought the Latins have derived it from the term art. But if virtue cannot come except to the clever, what need was there of the god Father Cassius, who should make men cautious, that is, acute, when felicity could confer this? Because to be born clever belongs to felicity. Whence, although goddess Felicity could not be worshipped by one not yet born, in order that, being made his friend, she might bestow this on him, yet she might confer this favour on parents who were her worshippers, that clever children should be born to them. What need had women in childbirth to invoke Lucina, when, if Felicity should be present, they would have not only a good delivery, but good children also? What need was there to commend the children to the goddess Ops, when they were being born, to the god Vaticanus and their birth-cry, to the goddess Cunina, when lying cradled, to the goddess Romina, when sucking, to the goddess Datilinius, when standing, to the goddess Adiona, when coming, to Abiona, when going away, to the goddess Mens, that they might have a good mind, to the god Volumnus, and the goddess Volumna, that they might wish for good things, to the nuptial gods, that they might make good matches, to the rural gods, and chiefly to the goddess Fructesca herself, that they might receive the most abundant fruits, to Mars and Bellona, that they might carry on war well, to the goddess Victoria, that they might be victorious, to the god Honor, that they might be honoured, to the goddess Pecunia, that they might have plenty money, to the god Escalanus, and his son Argentinus, that they might have brass and silver coin. For they set down Escalanus as the father of Argentinus for this reason, that brass coin began to be used before silver. But I wonder Argentinus has not begotten Aurinus, since gold coin also has followed. Could they have him for a god, they would prefer Arenas both to his father Argentinus and his grandfather Escalanus, just as they set Jove before Saturn. Therefore what necessity was there on account of these gifts, either of soul, or body, or outward estate, to worship and invoke so great a crowd of gods, all of whom I have not mentioned, nor have they themselves been able to provide for all human benefits, minutely and singly methodized, minute and single gods, when the one goddess Felicity was able, with the greatest ease, compendiously to bestow the whole of them? Nor should any other be sought after, either for the bestowing of good things, or for the averting of evil." For why should they invoke the goddess Fasonia for the weary, for driving away enemies, the goddess Polonia, for the sick as a physician, either Apollo or Aesculapius, or both together, if there should be great danger? Neither should the god Spiniensis be entreated that he might root out the thorns from the fields, nor the goddess Rubigo that the mildew might not come. Felicitas alone, being present and guarding, either no evils would have arisen, or they would have been quite easily driven away. Finally, since we treat of these two goddesses, virtue and felicity, if felicity is the reward of virtue, she is not a goddess, but a gift of God. But if she is a goddess, why may she not be said to confer virtue itself, inasmuch as it is a great felicity to attain virtue? CHAPTER Twenty Two. 
What is it, then, that Varro boasts he has bestowed as a very great benefit on his fellow-citizens, because he not only recounts the gods who ought to be worshipped by the Romans, but also tells what pertains to each of them? Just as it is of no advantage, he says, to know the name and appearance of any man who is a physician, and not know that he is a physician, so, he says, it is of no advantage to know well that Esculapius is a god, if you are not aware that he can bestow the gift of health, and consequently do not know why you ought to supplicate him. He also affirms this by another comparison, saying, No one is able not only to live well, but even to live at all, if he does not know who is a smith, who a baker, who a weaver, from whom he can seek any utensil, whom he may take for a helper, whom for a leader, whom for a teacher, asserting, that in this way it can be doubtful to no one that thus the knowledge of the gods is useful, if one can know what force and faculty or power any god may have in any thing, for from this we may be able, he says, to know what god we ought to call to and invoke for any cause, lest we should do as too many are wont to do, and desire water from Liber and wine from lymphs. Very useful, forsooth. Who would not give this man thanks if he could show true things, and if he could teach that the one true God, from whom all good things are, is to be worshipped by men? Chapter 23 But how does it happen, if their books and rituals are true, and Felicity is a goddess, that she herself is not appointed as the only one to be worshipped, since she could confer all things, and all at once make men happy? For who wishes anything for any other reason than that he may become happy? Why was it left to Lucullus to dedicate a temple to so great a goddess, at so late a date, and after so many Roman rulers? Why did Romulus himself, ambitious as he was of founding a fortunate city, not erect a temple to this goddess before all others? Why did he supplicate the other gods for anything, since he would have lacked nothing had she been with him? For even he himself would neither have been first a king, then afterwards, as they think, a god, if this goddess had not been propitious to him. Why, therefore, did he appoint his gods for the Romans, Janus, Jove, Mars, Picus, Faunus, Tiburnus, Hercules, and others, if there were more of them? Why did Titus Tatius add Saturn, Ops, Sun, Moon, Vulcan, Light, and whatever others he added, among whom was even the goddess Cloacino, while Felicity was neglected? Why did Numa appoint so many gods and so many goddesses without this one? Was it perhaps because he could not see her among so great a crowd? Certainly King Hostilius would not have introduced the new god's fear and dread to be propitiated, if he could have known or might have worshipped this goddess. For in presence of felicity fear and dread would have disappeared, I do not say propitiated, but put to flight. Next, I ask, how is it that the Roman Empire had already immensely increased before any one worshipped felicity? Was the empire therefore more great than happy? For how could true felicity be there where there was not true piety? For piety is the genuine worship of the true God, and not the worship of as many demons as there are false gods. Yet even afterwards, when felicity had already been taken into the number of the gods, the great infelicity of the civil wars ensued. Was felicity perhaps justly indignant, both because she was invited so late, and was not invited to honor, but rather to reproach, because along with her were worshipped Priapus, and Cloacina, and Fear, and Dread, and Ague, and others which were not gods to be worshipped, but the crimes of the worshippers? Last of all, if it seemed good to worship so great a goddess along with a most unworthy crowd, why at least was she not worshipped in a more honorable way than the rest? For is it not intolerable that Felicity is placed neither among the gods consentes, whom they allege to be admitted into the council of Jupiter, nor among the gods whom they term select? 
Some temple might be made for her, which might be preeminent, both in loftiness of sight and dignity of style. Why, indeed, not something better than is made for Jupiter himself? For who gave the kingdom even to Jupiter but Felicity? I am supposing that when he reigned he was happy. Felicity, however, is certainly more valuable than a kingdom. For no one doubts that a man might easily be found who may fear to be made a king, but no one is found who is unwilling to be happy. Therefore, if it is thought they can be consulted by augury, or in any other way, the gods themselves should be consulted about this thing, whether they may wish to give place to felicity. If perchance the place should already be occupied by the temples and altars of others, where a greater and more lofty temple might be built to felicity, even Jupiter himself might give way, so that felicity might rather obtain the very pinnacle of the Capitoline hill. For there is not any one who would resist felicity, except, which is impossible, one who might wish to be unhappy. Certainly, if he should be consulted, Jupiter would in no case do what those three gods, Mars, Terminus, and Juventas, did, who positively refused to give place to their superior and king. For as their books record, when King Tarquin wished to construct the capital, and perceived that the place which seemed to him to be the most worthy and suitable was preoccupied by other gods, not daring to do anything contrary to their pleasure, and believing that they would willingly give place to a god who was so great, and was their own master, because there were many of them there when the capital was founded, he inquired by augury whether they chose to give place to Jupiter, and they were all willing to remove thence, except those whom I have named, Mars, Terminus, and Juventus, and therefore the capital was built in such a way that these three also might be within it, yet with such obscure signs that even the most learned men could scarcely know this. Surely, then, Jupiter himself would by no means despise Felicity, as he was himself despised by Terminus, Mars, and Juventus. But even they themselves, who had not given place to Jupiter, would certainly give place to Felicity, who had made Jupiter king over them. Or if they should not give place, they would act thus not out of contempt of her, but because they chose rather to be obscure in the house of Felicity than to be eminent without her in their own places. Thus the goddess Felicity being established in the largest and loftiest place, the citizen should learn whence the furtherance of every good desire should be sought. And so, by the persuasion of nature herself, the superfluous multitude of other gods being abandoned, felicity alone would be worshipped, prayer would be made to her alone, her temple alone would be frequented by the citizens who wished to be happy, which no one of them would not wish, and thus felicity, who was sought for from all the gods, would be sought for only from her own self. For who wishes to receive from any god anything else than felicity, or what he supposes to tend to felicity? Wherefore, if Felicity has it in her power to be with what man she pleases, and she has it, if she is a goddess, what folly is it, after all, to seek from any other god her whom you can obtain by request from her own self? Therefore they ought to honour this goddess above other gods, even by dignity of place. For as we read in their own authors, the ancient Romans paid greater honours to I know not what Simanus, to whom they attributed nocturnal thunderbolts, than to Jupiter, to whom diurnal thunderbolts were held to pertain. But after a famous and conspicuous temple had been built to Jupiter, owing to the dignity of the building, the multitude resorted to him in so great numbers, that scarce one can be found who remembers even to have read the name of Simanus, which now he cannot hear once named. But if Felicity is not a goddess, because, as it is true, it is a gift of God, that God must be sought who has power to give it, and that hurtful multitude of false gods must be abandoned, which the vain multitude of foolish men follows after, making gods to itself of the gifts of God, and offending himself whose gifts they are by the stubbornness of a proud will.' 
For he cannot be free from infelicity who worships felicity as a goddess, and forsakes God the giver of felicity, just as he cannot be free from hunger who licks a painted loaf of bread, and does not buy it of the man who has a real one. Chapter 24 We may, however, consider their reasons. Is it to be believed, say they, that our forefathers were besotted even to such a degree as not to know that these things are divine gifts, and not God's? But as they knew that such things are granted to no one except by some god freely bestowing them, they called the gods whose names they did not find out by the names of those things which they deemed to be given by them, sometimes slightly altering the name for that purpose, as, for example, from war they have named Bellona, not Bellum, from cradles Cunina, not Cune, from standing corn Segesia, not Seges, from apples Pomona, not Pomum, from oxen Bubona, not Bos. Sometimes, again, with no alteration of the word, just as the things themselves are named, so that the goddess who gives money is called pecunia, and money is not thought to be itself a goddess, so of virtus who gives virtue, honor who gives honor, concordia who gives concord, victoria who gives victory. So, they say, when felicitas is called a goddess, what is meant is not the thing itself which is given, but that deity by whom felicity is given. Chapter 25 Having had that reason rendered to us, we shall perhaps much more easily persuade, as we wish, those whose heart has not become too much hardened. For if now human infirmity is perceived that felicity cannot be given except by some god, if this was perceived by those who worship so many gods, at whose head they set Jupiter himself, if in their ignorance of the name of him by whom felicity was given, they agreed to call him by the name of that very thing which they believed he gave, then it follows that they thought that felicity could not be given even by Jupiter himself, whom they already worshipped, but certainly by him whom they thought fit to worship under the name of felicity itself. I thoroughly affirm the statement that they believed felicity to be given by a certain god whom they knew not. Let him therefore be sought after, let him be worshipped, and it is enough." Let the train of innumerable demons be repudiated, and let this God suffice every man whom his gift suffices. For him, I say, God, the giver of felicity, will not be enough to worship, for whom felicity itself is not enough to receive. But let him for whom it suffices, and man has nothing more he ought to wish for, serve the one God, the giver of felicity. This God is not he whom they call Jupiter. For if they acknowledged him to be the giver of felicity, they would not seek under the name of felicity itself for another god or goddess by whom felicity might be given, nor could they tolerate that Jupiter himself should be worshipped with such infamous attributes. For he is said to be the debaucher of the wives of others. He is the shameless lover and ravisher of a beautiful boy. Chapter 26 but, says Cicero, Homer invented these things, and transferred things human to the gods. I would rather transfer things divine to us. The poet, by ascribing such crimes to the gods, has justly displeased the grave man. Why, then, are the scenic plays where those crimes are habitually spoken of, acted, exhibited, in honor of the gods, reckoned among things divine by the most learned men? Cicero should exclaim, not against the inventions of the poets, but against the customs of the ancients. Would not they have exclaimed in reply, What have we done? The gods themselves have loudly demanded that these plays should be exhibited in their honor, have fiercely exacted them, have menaced destruction unless this was performed, have avenged its neglect with great severity, and have manifested pleasure at the reparation of such neglect. Among their virtuous and wonderful deeds the following is related. 
It was announced in a dream to Titus Latinius, a Roman rustic, that he should go to the Senate and tell them to recommence the games of Rome, because on the first day of their celebration a condemned criminal had been led to punishment in the sight of the people, an incident so sad as to disturb the gods who were seeking amusement from the games. And when the peasant who had received this intimation was afraid on the following day to deliver it to the Senate, it was renewed next night in a severer form. He lost his son because of his neglect. On the third night he was warned that yet a graver punishment was impending, if he should still refuse obedience. When even thus he did not dare to obey, he fell into a virulent and horrible disease. But then, on the advice of his friends, he gave information to the magistrates, and was carried in a litter into the Senate, and having, on declaring his dream, immediately recovered strength, went away on his own feet whole. The Senate, amazed at so great a miracle, decreed that the game should be renewed at fourfold cost. What sensible man does not see that men, being put upon by malignant demons, from whose domination nothing save the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord sets free, have been compelled by force to exhibit to such gods as these, plays which, if well advised, they should condemn as shameful? Certain it is that in these plays the poetic crimes of the gods are celebrated, yet they are plays which were re-established by decree of the Senate under compulsion of the gods." In these plays the most shameless actors celebrated Jupiter as the corrupter of chastity, and thus gave him pleasure. If that was a fiction, he would have been moved to anger, but if he was delighted with the representation of his crimes, even although fabulous, then when he happened to be worshipped, who but the devil could be served? Is it so that he could found, extend, and preserve the Roman Empire, who was more vile than any Roman man whatever, to whom such things were displeasing? Could he give Felicity, who was so infelicitously worshipped, and who, unless he should be thus worshipped, was yet more infelicitously provoked to anger? Chapter 27 It is recorded that the very learned pontiff Scyvola had distinguished about three kinds of gods, one introduced by the poets, another by the philosophers, another by the statesmen. The first kind he declares to be trifling, because many unworthy things have been invented by the poets concerning the gods. The second does not suit states, because it contains some things that are superfluous, and some too which would be prejudicial for the people to know. It is no great matter about the superfluous things, for it is a common saying of skilful lawyers, superfluous things do no harm. But what are those things which do harm when brought before the multitude? These, he says, that Hercules, Aesculapius, Castor, and Pollux are not gods, for it is declared by learned men that these were but men, and yielded to the common lot of mortals. What else? That states have not the true images of the gods, because the true god has neither sex, nor age, nor definite corporeal members. The pontiff is not willing that the people should know these things, for he does not think they are false. He thinks it expedient, therefore, that states should be deceived in matters of religion, which Varro himself does not even hesitate to say in his books about things divine. Excellent religion, to which the weak, who requires to be delivered, may flee for succor, and when he seeks for the truth by which he may be delivered, it is believed to be expedient for him that he be deceived. And truly, in these same books, Scyvola is not silent as to his reason for rejecting the poetic sort of gods, to wit, because they so disfigure the gods that they could not bear comparison even with good men, when they make one to commit theft, another adultery, or again to say or do something else basely and foolishly, as the three goddesses contested with each other the prize of beauty, and the two vanquished by Venus destroyed Troy, that Jupiter turned himself into a bull or swan that he might copulate with some one, that a goddess married a man, 
and Saturn devoured his children, that, in fine, there is nothing that could be imagined, either of the miraculous or vicious, which may not be found there, and yet is far removed from the nature of the gods. O chief pontiff Scyvola, take away the plays if thou art able. Instruct the people that they may not offer such honours to the immortal gods, in which, if they like, they may admire the crimes of the gods, and so far as it is possible may, if they please, imitate them. But if the people shall have answered thee, You, O pontiff, have brought these things in among us, then ask the gods themselves, at whose instigation you have ordered these things, that they may not order such things to be offered to them. For if they are bad, and therefore in no way to be believed concerning the majority of the gods, the greater is the wrong done the gods about whom they are feigned with impunity. But they do not hear thee, they are demons, they teach wicked things, they rejoice in vile things. Not only do they not count it a wrong if these things are feigned about them, but it is a wrong they are quite unable to bear if they are not acted at their stated festivals. But now, if thou wouldst call on Jupiter against them, chiefly for that reason that more of his crimes are wont to be acted in the scenic plays, is it not the case that although you call him God Jupiter, by whom this world is ruled and administered, it is he to whom the greatest wrong is done by you, because you have thought he ought to be worshipped along with them, and have styled him their king? CHAPTER Twenty Eight. Therefore such gods who are propitiated by such honours, or rather are impeached by them, for it is a greater crime to delight in having such things said of them falsely, than even if they could be said truly, could never by any means have been able to increase and preserve the Roman Empire. For if they could have done it, they would rather have bestowed so grand a gift on the Greeks, who, in this kind of divine things, that is, in scenic plays, have worshipped them more honourably and worthily, although they have not exempted themselves from those slanders of the poets, by whom they saw the gods torn in pieces, giving them license to ill-use any man they pleased, and have not deemed the scenic players themselves to be base, but have held them worthy even of distinguished honour. But just as the Romans were able to have gold money, although they did not worship a god Orinus, so also they could have silver and brass coin, and yet worship neither Argentinus nor his father Escalanus, and so of all the rest, which it would be irksome for me to detail. It follows, therefore, both that they could not by any means attain such dominion if the true God was unwilling, and that if these gods, false and many, were unknown or contemned, and he alone was known and worshipped with sincere faith and virtue, they would both have a better kingdom here, whatever might be its extent, and whether they might have one here or not, would afterwards receive an eternal kingdom. CHAPTER Twenty Nine. For what kind of augury is that which they have declared to be most beautiful, and to which I referred a little ago, that Mars and Terminus and Juventus would not give place even to Jove the king of the gods? For thus, they say, it was signified that the nation dedicated to Mars, that is, the Roman, should yield to none the place it once occupied. Likewise, that on account of the god Terminus, no one would be able to disturb the Roman frontiers, and also that the Roman youth, because of the goddess Juventus, should yield to no one. Let them see, therefore, how they can hold him to be the king of their gods, and the giver of their own kingdom, if these auguries set him down for an adversary, to whom it would have been honourable not to yield. However, if these things are true, they need not be at all afraid. For they are not going to confess that the gods who would not yield to Jove have yielded to Christ. For without altering the boundaries of the empire, Jesus Christ has proved himself able to drive them not only from their temples, but from the hearts of their worshippers. 
But before Christ came in the flesh, and indeed before these things which we have quoted from their books could have been written, but yet after that auspice was made under King Tarquin, the Roman army has been diverse times scattered or put to flight, and has shown the falseness of the auspice, which they derived from the fact that the goddess Juventus had not given place to Jove, and the nation dedicated to Mars was trodden down in the city itself by the invading and triumphant Gauls, and the boundaries of the empire, through the falling away of many cities to Hannibal, had been hemmed into a narrow space. Thus the beauty of the auspices is made void, and there has remained only the contumacy against Jove, not of gods, but of demons. For it is one thing not to have yielded, and another to have returned whither you have yielded. Besides, even afterwards, in the Oriental regions, the boundaries of the Roman Empire were changed by the will of Hadrian, for he yielded up to the Persian Empire those three noble provinces, Armenia, Mesopotamia, and Assyria, Thus that god Terminus, who according to these books was the guardian of the Roman frontiers, and by that most beautiful auspice had not given place to Jove, would seem to have been more afraid of Hadrian, a king of men, than of the king of the gods. The aforesaid provinces having also been taken back again, almost within our own recollection, the frontier fell back, when Julian, given up to the oracles of their gods, with immoderate daring ordered the victualling ships to be set on fire. The army being thus left destitute of provisions, and he himself also being presently killed by the enemy, and the legions being hard-pressed, while dismayed by the loss of their commander, they were reduced to such extremities that no one could have escaped, unless by articles of peace the boundaries of the empire had then been established where they still remain. Not indeed with so great a loss as was suffered by the concession of Hadrian, but still at a considerable sacrifice." It was a vain augury, then, that the god Terminus did not yield to Jove, since he yielded to the will of Hadrian, and yielded also to the rashness of Julian, and the necessity of Jovinian. The more intelligent and brave Romans have seen these things, but have had little power against the custom of the state, which was bound to observe the rights of the demons, because even they themselves, although they perceived that these things were vain, yet thought that the religious worship which is due to God should be paid to the nature of things which is established under the rule and government of the one true God, serving, as saith the Apostle, the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed for evermore. The help of this true God was necessary to send holy and truly pious men, who would die for the true religion, that they might remove the false from among the living. CHAPTER thirty. Cicero the augur laughs at auguries, and reproves men for regulating the purposes of life by the cries of crows and jackdaws. But it will be said that an academic philosopher who argues that all things are uncertain is unworthy to have any authority in these matters. In the second book of his De Naturo Deorum, he introduces Lucilius Balbus, who, after showing that superstitions have their origin in physical and philosophical truths, expresses his indignation at the setting up of images and fabulous notions, speaking thus, Do you not therefore see that from true and useful physical discoveries the reason may be drawn away to fabulous and imaginary gods? This gives birth to false opinions and turbulent errors and superstitions well nigh old wifeish. For both the forms of the gods and their ages and clothing and ornaments are made familiar to us. Their genealogies, too, their marriages, kinships, and all things about them are debased to the likeness of human weakness. They are even introduced as having perturbed minds, for we have accounts of the lusts, cares, and angers of the gods. Nor, indeed, as the fables go, have the gods been without their wars and battles. And that not only when, as in Homer, some gods on either side have defended two opposing armies, but they have even carried on wars on their own account, as with the Titans or with the Giants. 
such things that is quite absurd either to say or to believe, they are utterly frivolous and groundless. Behold now what is confessed by those who defend the gods of the nations. Afterwards he goes on to say that some things belong to superstition, but others to religion, which he thinks good to teach according to the Stoics. For not only the philosophers, he says, but also our forefathers, have made a distinction between superstition and religion. For those, he says, who spent whole days in prayer, and offered sacrifice, that their children might outlive them, are called superstitious. Who does not see that he is trying, while he fears the public prejudice, to praise the religion of the ancients, and that he wishes to disjoin it from superstition, but cannot find out how to do so? For if those who prayed and sacrificed all day were called superstitious by the ancients, were those also called so, who instituted, what he blames, the images of the gods of diverse age and distinct clothing, and invented the genealogies of gods, their marriages, and kinships? When, therefore, these things are found fault with as superstitious, he implicates in that fault the ancients who instituted and worshipped such images. Nay, he implicates himself, who, with whatever eloquence he may strive to extricate himself and be free, was yet under the necessity of venerating these images. Nor dared he so much as whisper in a discourse to the people what in this disputation he plainly sounds forth. Let us Christians therefore give thanks to the Lord our God, not to heaven and earth, as that author argues, but to him who has made heaven and earth, because these superstitions, which that Balbus, like a babbler, scarcely reprehends, he, by most deep lowliness of Christ, by the preaching of the apostles, by the faith of the martyrs dying for the truth and living with the truth, has overthrown not only in the hearts of the religious, but even in the temples of the superstitious, by their own free service. CHAPTER Thirty One. What says Varro himself, whom we grieve to have found, although not by his own judgment, placing the scenic plays among things divine? When in many passages he is exhorting like a religious man to the worship of the gods, does he not in doing so admit that he does not in his own judgment believe those things which he relates that the Roman state has instituted, so that he does not hesitate to affirm that if he were founding a new state, he could enumerate the gods and their names better by the rule of nature? But being born into a nation already ancient, he says that he finds himself bound to accept the traditional names and surnames of the gods, and the histories connected with them, and that his purpose in investigating and publishing these details is to incline the people to worship the gods, and not to despise them. By which words this most acute man sufficiently indicates that he does not publish all things, because they would not only have been contemptible to himself, but would have seemed despicable even to the rabble, unless they had been passed over in silence." I should be thought to conjecture these things, unless he himself, in another passage, had openly said, in speaking of religious rites, that many things are true, which it is not only not useful for the common people to know, but that it is expedient that the people should think otherwise, even though falsely, and therefore the Greeks have shut up the religious ceremonies and mysteries in silence and within walls. In this he no doubt expresses the policy of the so-called wise men by whom states and peoples are ruled. Yet by this crafty device the malign demons are wonderfully delighted, who possess alike the deceivers and the deceived, and from whose tyranny nothing sets free save the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The same most acute and learned author also says that those alone seem to him to have perceived what God is, who have believed him to be the soul of the world, governing it by design and reason. 
and by this it appears that although he did not attain to the truth, for the true God is not a soul, but the maker and author of the soul, yet if he could have been free to go against the prejudices of custom, he could have confessed and counseled others that the one God ought to be worshipped, who governs the world by design and reason, so that on this subject only this point would remain to be debated with him, that he had called him a soul, and not rather the creator of the soul. He says also that the ancient Romans, for more than a hundred and seventy years, worshipped the gods without an image. And if this custom, he says, could have remained till now, the gods would have been more purely worshipped. In favor of this opinion, he cites as a witness, among others, the Jewish nation. Nor does he hesitate to conclude that passage by saying, of those who first consecrated images for the people, that they have both taken away religious fear from their fellow citizens, and increased error, wisely thinking that the gods easily fall into contempt when exhibited under the stolidity of images. But as he does not say they have transmitted error, but that they have increased it, he therefore wishes it to be understood that there was error already, when there were no images. Wherefore, when he says, They alone have perceived what God is, who have believed him to be the governing soul of the world, and thinks that the rites of religion would have been more purely observed without images, who fails to see how near he has come to the truth? For if he had been able to do anything against so inveterate an error, he would certainly have given it as his opinion, both that the one God should be worshipped, and that he should be worshipped without an image. And having so nearly discovered the truth, perhaps he might easily have been put in mind of the mutability of the soul, and might thus have perceived that the true God is that immutable nature which made the soul itself. Since these things are so, whatever ridicule such men have poured in their writings against the plurality of the gods, they have done so rather as compelled by the secret will of God to confess them, than as trying to persuade others. If, therefore, any testimonies are adduced by us from these writings, they are adduced for the confutation of those who are unwilling to consider from how great and malignant the power of the demons, the singular sacrifice of the shedding of the most holy blood, and the gift of the imparted spirit, can set us free. Chapter 32. Varro says also, concerning the generations of the gods, that the people have inclined to the poets rather than to the natural philosophers, and that therefore their forefathers, that is, the ancient Romans, believed both in the sects and the generations of the gods, and settled their marriages, which certainly seems to have been done for no other cause except that it was the business of such men as were prudent and wise to deceive the people in matters of religion, and in that very thing not only to worship but also to imitate the demons, whose greatest lust is to deceive. For just as the demons cannot possess any but those whom they have deceived with guile, so also men in princely office, not indeed being just, but like demons, have persuaded the people in the name of religion to receive as true those things which they themselves knew to be false, in this way, as it were, binding them up more firmly in civil society, so that they might in like manner possess them as subjects. But who that was weak and unlearned could escape the deceits of both the princes of the state and the demons? Chapter 33. Therefore that God, the author and giver of felicity, because he alone is the true God, himself gives earthly kingdoms both the good and bad. Neither does he do this rashly, and as it were fortuitously, because he is God, not fortune, but according to the order of things and times which is hidden from us, but thoroughly known to himself. Which same order of times, however, he does not serve as subject to it, but himself rules as lord and appoints as governor. Felicity he gives only to the good. Whether a man be a subject or a king makes no difference, he may equally either possess it or not possess it. And it shall be full in that life where kings and subjects exist no longer. 
and therefore earthly kingdoms are given by him both to the good and to the bad, lest his worshippers, still under the conduct of a very weak mind, should covet these gifts from him as some great things. And this is the mystery of the Old Testament in which the new was hidden, that there even earthly gifts are promised. Those who were spiritual, understanding even then, although not yet openly declaring, both the eternity which was symbolized by these earthly things, and in what gifts of God true felicity could be found. Chapter 34 Therefore, that it might be known that these earthly good things, after which those pant who cannot imagine better things, remain in the power of the one God himself, not of the many false gods whom the Romans have formerly believed worthy of worship, he multiplied his people in Egypt from being very few, and delivered them out of it by wonderful signs. Nor did their women invoke Lucina when their offspring was being incredibly multiplied, and that nation having increased incredibly, he himself delivered, he himself saved them from the hands of the Egyptians who persecuted them, and wished to kill all their infants. Without the goddess Romina they sucked, without Cunina they were cradled, without Educa and Potina they took food and drink, without all those puerile gods they were educated, without the nuptial gods they were married, without the worship of Priapus they had conjugal intercourse, without invocation of Neptune the divided sea opened up a way for them to pass over, and overwhelmed with its returning waves their enemies who pursued them. Neither did they consecrate any goddess Mania when they received manna from heaven, nor when the smitten rock poured forth water to them when they thirsted, did they worship nymphs and lymphs. Without the mad rites of Mars and Bellona they carried on war, and while indeed they did not conquer without victory, yet they did not hold it to be a goddess, but the gift of their god. Without Segesia they had harvests, without Bubona oxen, honey without Melona, apples without Pomona, and, in a word, everything for which the Romans thought they must supplicate so great a crowd of false gods, they received much more happily from the one true God. And if they had not sinned against him with impious curiosity, which seduced them like magic arts, and drew them to strange gods and idols, and at last led them to kill Christ, their kingdom would have remained to them, and would have been, if not more spacious, yet more happy than that of Rome. And now that they are dispersed through almost all lands and nations, it is through the providence of that one true God, that whereas the images, altars, groves, and temples of the false gods are everywhere overthrown, and their sacrifices prohibited, it may be shown from their books how this has been foretold by their prophets so long before, lest, perhaps, when they should be read in ours, they might seem to be invented by us. But now, reserving what is to follow for the following book, we must here set a bound to the prolixity of this one. End of Book 4, Chapters 19-34 through 34. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org